Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Dr. Remy Adekoya, a politics lecturer at the University of York. Before joining Academia, Remy was a journalist who has written for Guardian, Sunday Times, New Statesman, Washington Post, Foreign Policy, Foreign Affairs, Politico, Spectator, Evening Standard, and Unheard, among others. He has provided sociopolitical analysis and commentary for CNN, BBC, Sky News, Al Jazeera, South African Broadcasting Corporation, Talk Radio, and Times Radio, among others. Remy is the author of Biracial Britain and a new book titled, It's Not About Whiteness, It's About Wealth. I welcome Remy Adekoya to Savage Minds. During the pandemic, Americans experienced what they call the BLM movement. And it was very interesting the way that that was curated. They were told, you can't go out and protest. No mask protest, no vaccine protest. Oh, but the BLM protest, yeah. Yeah, it's right there. And it's very interesting to me the way that the powers that be and that were used this as a distraction from, I think, a lot of mishandling. That's my reading. Because at the end of the day, once again, we can wear all the pronoun badges, we can talk about reparations in the American context, but that doesn't change the present. And I find it very interesting. Your book gets right at this in the introduction. Can you talk to our listeners about this? Because your introduction sets up the rest of your book quite perfectly. <laughs> and, and it's refreshing in, in this day and age of you cannot have a discussion about this with people without literally being called a racist or something mm -hmm. else. Yeah? Yes. So, yeah. So, look, I think um, I was born in Nigeria to start off with. I was born in Nigeria to a Nigerian father and a Polish mother. I grew up in Nigeria. I think this is important. This was definitely an important uh, period in my life with regards to shaping my worldviews, you know, experience race. So I grew up not experiencing race in a Western context, in a Western white majority context, but experiencing being a mixed race son of a Nigerian father and a Polish mother uh, growing up in Nigeria, where I went to primary and secondary school. And so I also experienced how and was around Africans talking about white people, Africans talking about the West. Uh, I grew up, I remember, you know, we all sort of, you know, looked up to, you know, in Britain and America because these were the cultural capitals of the world. And these were the big economies of the world. These were the countries that set trends. These were the countries whose movies we watched, okay? So we sort of grew up, you know, when you grew up in a country like Nigeria, especially 1990s when I was growing up, you are somehow growing up if we're on, on the periphery sort of, you know, of that big global stage. And so you sort of, you know, your eyes are set on the Americas, the Britons, you know, the rich Western nations. And so I grew up in that kind of context. And then I left um, Nigeria after finishing secondary school. I went to live in Poland, my mother's homeland. Completely different experience. So I moved from a predominantly virtually all black society in Nigeria to a virtually all white society in Poland. And Poland was the first um, uh, society where I experienced, you know, white racism. Uh, so racism coming from white people, because racism can come from all sorts of people, of course. And, 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 and a lot of it was, you know, very brutal and crude, uh, especially back in the, in the late 90s and in the early 2000s. I lived in Poland for 19 years. And then after that, I moved to the UK. So I've lived in Britain for eight years. 
Britain is, of course, a very different country from both Poland and Nigeria. Britain is the first multiracial country I've lived in where there's a significant proportion of the population is a racial minority. And so I got here to Britain and obviously race is talked about a, a lot here in Britain. But I always sort of felt um, that, you know, look, this this discussion doesn't seem to sort of, you know, get at the heart of things. And it's not just that I felt that, you know, I, Remy, sort of felt that. But I knew the kind of things we talked about with my friends, with the Nigerians I grew up with, with the Africans I mixed with in Poland. I knew the kinds of complaints they had. I knew the kinds of sentiments they expressed. Um, I knew sort of, you know, their aspirations. I knew sort of more or less, you know, how they saw the race thing. And I knew this wasn't exactly the way the people who are talking about race here, you know, the Western race activists, it, it's not the same vision. They, they see things differently. So first of all, one important thing is I think there is a very different uh, perspective of race if you are a racial minority, black or brown skinned, who grew up in a Western society, okay? And if you are a black or brown person uh, or another non-white person who grew up outside the West in another society and then came here as an adult, those are two quite different perspectives. One thing which I've always found lacking in that sort of perspective of, you know, the Western race activist, let's say, or the Western intellectual of color who writes about race, one thing I've always found lacking is that attention to sort of the material realities of the whole race situation. And not just within a particular country like Britain, but globally. Okay. So because I grew up in Nigeria, I knew what it was like to see, to have poverty all around you. I knew how desperate people were in Nigeria to get visas to go to the West. Okay. Because you can go there and improve your life economically. Those are the kind of things people were talking about when I was growing up there in Nigeria, you know. People weren't talking about colonialism, much less talking about slavery, you know, centuries ago. People wanted to know, you know, how do I get a visa to go to the U.S., to go to Britain, so I can work, improve my life, you know, give my children a, a shot at life. Those are the kind of things people were talking about. And, and, and if you ask people, you know, the main thing which, which they saw as the problem, as the problem of black people, as the problem of Africans, they'll tell you, you know, it's economic stuff, they'll tell you. That's what we need. We need economic development. That's what people were talking about here. But then when I come here to a country like Britain, obviously, because this is a wealthy country, so the non-white populations here, that's not the focus of, that's not their focus. Their focus is not, oh, we need economic development. The focus is, oh, okay, um, there's, you know, white supremacy here, and there's this kinds of, you know, whiteness there. And, you know, and there's this obsession around whiteness, generally speaking. Now, I understand it from one perspective, because I know, okay, fine, these are people grew up in a white majority society. So they seem very often uh, people have grown up, you know, with various sorts of, you know, racial complexes, we can call it, various sorts of, you know, hidden resentments there, okay? At the end of the day, you know, it's not an easy thing. I try to put myself in people's shoes always. So it's not an easy thing. If I try to imagine myself having grown up in Britain, it's not an easy thing for the descendants of the formerly colonized to be growing up in a country where the majority are descendants of those who colonized their ancestors, okay? And, and you live in that, in that kind of situation. Let's say that's Britain specifically here, or, or for example, how it would be in France, and you live side by side. First of all, there's something a little bit humiliating about that experience, 
because generally speaking, it should not be the case that you, the descendants of the formerly colonized, have to go to the country of the former colonizer in order to have a better life. There is something intrinsically humiliating in that. And if people had a choice, they would prefer not to do that. Okay, they would prefer not to do that. But the reality is that they did that or their parents had to do that. And so they grow up with that kind of, you know, resentment, you know, is, is at, the back, at the back of their head. And they're growing up in these white majority societies. And because of the fact that, as I argue in the book, human beings are hierarchical creatures. Now, all human societies are organized into various kinds of hierarchies. You have occupational hierarchies, you have some gender hierarchies, age hierarchies. There's all sorts of hierarchies in every single human society. And since we do live in a capitalist world, one clear hierarchy in virtually every society in the world we should go to today is that wealth hierarchy, that material hierarchy. Yeah. So here in Britain, you know, you have what they call the working classes, you have the upper classes, the middle classes, etc. And as it happens, of course, a lot of racial minorities do find themselves in that lower economic strata, strata of society here within the West. And if you look globally, as I talk about in the book, it's, you know, the, the inequalities are just incredible, simply. Just to give an example, like I had in the book, um, single European states like Britain and Germany have larger economies than the entire African continent. And Africa is a continent of 1.4 billion people. It's where 90% of the world's black population lives. And then you have a single country like Britain or Germany that has a larger economy than that entire continent of Africa. As I calculated um, uh, in the book, if you added up all the GDPs of all the 60 plus black majority countries in the world, so that's counting those in Africa plus those in the Caribbean, their combined GDP still wouldn't amount to Germany's $4 trillion GDP. So that's the kind of world we're living in. Why did I even go into, um, uh, if, I can, if I can talk a bit more, why did I even go into this, especially, you know, sort of the wealth aspect and, and calculating status? One thing I have definitely picked up being around all my African friends and black people, et cetera, is there is that anger and frustration, that feeling that blackness is identified with low status globally. That whiteness is identified with high status. So essentially that whites are like a high status group who get, you know, welcomed wherever they go. Whereas black people are very often, uh, this is the feeling among the black people, Black people are often seen as unwelcome in places where they go and are seen as, you know, lower status, a lower status group. And this is something that really sort of, you know, annoys people and frustrates people, especially perhaps the very well-educated and better earning elements of, 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 of the Black group. So sort of, you know, the higher someone rises up individually, so let's say, for instance, you have a successful Black lawyer here in Britain, the higher... Paradoxically, actually, the more it sort of um, frustrates them if they feel that, okay, even though I've risen up as a lawyer here, at the end of the day, some people still see me as simply a black person. And I might, for instance, walk into an office building somewhere in London, and somebody might mistake me for a delivery courier. Like I cited in the book, there was a famous case of the black editor-in-chief of Vogue magazine, which is like, you know, the top of there. The editor-in-chief of Vogue magazine walks into an office building and 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 the and, and the receptionist there mistakes him for the delivery courier, delivery delivery courier and says, "Oh, could you please use the loading bay?" 
Yeah. So that's a very sort of clear incident. Now, when that kind of thing happens, that, you know, that editor-in-chief of Vogue or that successful black lawyer, they'll, you know, go on social media. That, that That's the way it works today. They'll go on social media, they'll talk about it. And immediately you'll see like thousands of responses, thousands of replies from other black people who have had similar experiences and say, oh, yes, me too. I've been a lawyer for 25 years. And, you know, I walked in somewhere there and somebody mistook me, you know, for this kind of help or for that, or somebody disrespected me there, et cetera. So you see all those kinds of things coming out. And I understand this. I understand that it's hugely frustrating. But what is causing all this? Now, the easy answer, which the anti-racists give, they say, oh, that's racism. That's, you know, stereotyping. Okay, fine. Let's say it is racial stereotyping, but what's behind those stereotypes? As an anthropologist, you know, human beings operate with stereotypes all the time. Human beings stereotype all the time. Black people stereotype too. You know, I grew up in Nigeria, and there's all sorts of stereotypes circulating within Nigeria about various ethnic groups within the country, etc. So the, the problem, the, it, 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 it's no answer to say, oh, yeah, that's stereotyping. It's bad. You know, that doesn't solve the problem. You need to find out what's to make that stereotype. What's behind that stereotype, and how do you change this? Well, I lived in Haiti in 2010 after the earthquake, and I worked with many farmers, one of whom was a wealthy Haitian farmer who was awaiting his visa to go to Florida. And in the many months I came to know Guy, one day we were walking down the street together and the children came out. Now, it's very common in Haiti, if you are not Haitian, if you are not very dark-skinned Black, you can be Indian, you can be Hispanic, you can be many ethnicities, but the kids will come out and they will say, blanc, 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 white, white, white. Mm -hmm. So they did this with Guy and I. And I said, are they calling you white too? And he goes, mm. oh yeah, they do it all the time. Because here in Haiti, whiteness just means wealthy. That's right. That's right. That's the way it works. And so just to go back to make this clearer for our, for our audience here, and because we, we, we both read the book, so we know what I said that time. But to make this clearer for my audience, I said, okay, fine, we have that kind of situation. You have editor-in-chief of Vogue, black guy, walks into an office building, he's mistaken for the um, delivery courier. So what do we make of this? Like, the easy answer, the, today's anti-racist school, oh, that's racism, that's racial stereotyping. And they think sort of that, you know, if you say that, that's enough to deter people from making those kind of assumptions in the future. And I say, unfortunately, it is not. Because we live in this world I talked about where Germany has a larger GDP than all the um, uh, black um, uh, countries in the world together. And this world is essentially divided mainly into national economies. Okay, And wealth is a huge part of determining how groups are perceived based on where they are placed on that economic hierarchy. So the only reason, so now I ask, okay, fine. So if a white man was to walk into an office building in Lagos, would he ever be, would he ever be mistaken for a delivery courier? And the answer is no. I've lived in Nigeria. I know no white person walking into an office building would be mistaken for a delivery courier. Like you ask the sort of, like I say, let's call them a regular anti-racist school here. Why is that? Why wouldn't a white man be mistaken for a delivery courier in Nigeria? They'll tell you, oh, that's because of the racial complexes probably, you know, in Nigeria. It has nothing to do with racial complexes. It has to do with the fact that there is not a single white delivery courier in Nigeria. There is not a single white delivery courier in Nigeria because there is no white person that needs to go work for the $100, $150 a month that job would pay in Nigeria. This is why 
no white person would be mistaken for a delivery courier in a Nigerian office building. They'd immediately be assumed to be some kind of professional or some kind of business person, okay? Not because the Nigerian city guard there has some sort of huge racial complex and, you know, colonial mentality or something like that, but for the simple reality that he's never seen a white person doing a menial job in Nigeria. And now if you transfer that to the whole picture of the world, that's the kind of world we live in. So we live in a world where in white majority societies, you will find lots, millions and millions and millions and millions of black and brown skinned people doing menial, low paid jobs, because those are the jobs they're able to get, whether because they're just recently arrived immigrants or for whatever reasons. But that is the reality. You go to Italy, go to Germany, go to Britain, go to France, go to the US, go to Canada. You'll find millions and millions and millions of black and brown skinned people, non-white people doing menial jobs, low paid jobs or what are sometimes called low skilled jobs in white majority societies. But you will not find white people doing menial or low paid jobs in black majority countries or in brown majority countries or in any other non-white majority countries. That's simply the economic dynamic, with, that's the economic reality we live in. Now, that economic reality keeps, of course, into people's consciousness and into people's assumptions of who is positioned where, who is important, who works for who, you know. And because we are hierarchical creatures and because we have these status hierarchies everywhere you go, like, you know, you know, put six people in a room and they'll create some kind of hierarchy there, you know, and there'll be somebody who the others look up to and there'll be somebody who is looked down on, you know, I'm of course, I'm, I'm, I'm caricaturing a bit, but you know, human hierarchies form very quickly. And because we are so oriented around hierarchical thinking of, you know, who is up and who is down and who is important and who isn't, and this are essentially everywhere in the world, you have that, um, this creates all these kinds of assumptions in people's heads. And so if someone thinks that simply by saying, oh, that's a racist assumption, um, fine, you can say so, and we can even agree that it is, but that's not going to change the dynamic. It's not going to change the reality. Because at the end of the day, next week, there's still going to be millions and millions and millions of brown-skinned people doing um, menial jobs. And what all this creates is sort of global class system you could talk about in which essentially you have white people who are generally positioned at the top, not simply because they are white, but because they are seen as the wealthy group, as you mentioned in that Haitian example. Black people positioned generally at the bottom, not simply just because they are black also, because they are associated within, you know, the poorest group. And, you know, Africa is generally seen, unfortunately, as the you know, most backward, least developed continent in the world. And then you have all the other groups somewhere in between. And now this economic hierarchy, essentially, which is what sustains what I say is a racial order that still exists in the world, even though it's quite implicit, it's no longer explicit. But that economic hierarchy is what is sustaining that racial order. And now this seeps down into various spheres of our life because I looked, OK, what is it that people complain about? You know, when there's definitely quite a lot of resentment out there, like I talked about, and, and anger around this race issue. So I say, okay, what is it people complain? What is it, what are black people complaining about when it comes to this race issue? One thing people will bring up that, oh, knowledge production. That, oh, you know, I mean, knowledge production is dominated, you know, by the West, essentially. And you need to decolonize the curriculum and things like that. So I say, okay, fine. Let's take that issue, knowledge production. Definitely very important. Why is it that knowledge production is concentrated in the West or is controlled by white Westerners? 
Is it simply because they are white Westerners? Is it simply because they will it to be that way? Simply a matter of their will, that they will it to be that way. Again, we get back now to these economic realities. So as I gave the example, I, I lecture politics at the University of York, which is not one of the wealthiest universities in the UK. Yet in 2021, which I cite in the book, had, for instance, a budget of £421 million. That was the budget of the University of York 2021. Uh, at that time, that was roughly equivalent to roughly a third of Nigeria's entire education budget. And in Nigeria, uh, most universities are funded by the government. Okay? Universities like Oxford and Cambridge have budgets of roughly over £2 billion a year. Their budgets exceed Nigeria's entire education budget. So if we're talking about the entire education budget of a country, can we even imagine how small, how minute the budget of universities in most global South countries are? Not just in Nigeria. Nigeria is actually one of the wealthier countries in Africa. So what do you think the budget of a Kenyan university is or other universities in other global South places? They're, it's puny compared to the kinds of resources which you have in Western universities. So this, what does this create? This creates a scenario in which a the sort of the best, the leading academic journals in the world are all Western-based, Western finance. So that will tend to be predominantly white people who are the majority population in the West. Um, and so you have global sort of knowledge production concentrated in the West. You even have best minds from all over the world, from Nigeria or from you know, Brazil or from Malaysia or from India, coming to that Western center, not also because they have some kind of racial complexes or, or what, but simply because Western academia, is that's where the resources are. That's where they can get decent paying jobs, where they can do their research, which often costs money. These Western institutions have the money to finance that research. So someone thinking that, oh, oh, let's decolonize the, the curriculum, that's going to solve the problem. So you actually think that adding a couple of black or brown authors to the reading list of my university, how is that going to change any of these dynamics? What's that going to change there? You know, the universities, like you say, they don't mind that at all, that decolonizing the curriculum agenda. I don't blame them for not minding it. You know why? It doesn't cost them a penny. It doesn't cost them a penny. And they get to look good in the process. So if I was running a Western university and, you know, people are clearly agitated about this race issue and they come to me and let's say I'm a white, a white Brit running a, a wealthy university here. And then, you know, students are agitating about this race issue and, you know, they come to me and they say, oh, the solution is to decolonize, you know, the curriculum. We need to add more, you know, African authors and, and Asian authors, you know, to the reading lists and all that, which, of course, I have nothing against in principle. But if you have that scenario, me, as the owner of a university here or someone running a university here, I'd think, you know, why not? Why wouldn't I do that? It's not going to cost me anything. I'm going to look good in the process. It's not really going to change any dynamic because at the end of the day, we're the ones who control the money. Uh, most of these professors from around the world are coming here. Even students from poorer countries like Nigeria, Kenya, etc., are coming here with their tuition fees to Britain and going to America and leaving their money here. So what difference does it make to me really if there's a couple of more I as that white British um, person running the university here, what difference does it make to me? It doesn't cost me anything. So one of the reasons why these sort of cultural issues, I think, tend to dominate the race debate is because they're actually very convenient for the powers that be here. Because like I said, it doesn't cost them anything and they get to look good in the process. You know, who does this help? Difficult to see who. 
It might give some people emotional satisfaction here. Like I say, I have nothing against, you know, in, in principle, of course, I have nothing against the idea of there being more black and brown authors, you know, on reading this. But the idea that that is somehow going to change something, how? There's 500 million Africans living on less than $2 a day. How is decolonizing the curriculum here in Britain going to, going to change their lives? Very good question. And I've often said that academia has cashed in on this because it's also created a niche market of neoliberal professionals of the professorial cadre who run around mm -hmm. lecturing, writing books about how to decolonize the curriculum, decolonize the classroom, intersectionality. But at the end of the day, you have people like D'Angelo writing books about EDI and white guilt running about with six-figure lectures she's getting paid yeah. to discuss something that she will, one, never be affected by. She can be the mm -hmm. most virtuous person on the planet. That does nothing for the vast poverty in her own country because the United States does something that many of your fellow Nigerians will never see until they land in East St. Louis and see some poverty where they're looking at it and thinking, holy shit, it exists here too. And it's mm -hmm. not at the level, perhaps, or the pervasiveness of, of Nigeria, not. but no. there are <laughs> points in the United States, mm -hmm. and they're not just African American, there are white hillbillies in the US living mm -hmm. in dire poverty and in states of near starvation, especially over the last decade. So we're seeing this kind of economy of virtuosity, of signaling to others within the structure, here we are recognizing, beating their chest, that we are guilty, teaching Fanon, Dubois, etc., but doing little to change the panorama of the fact that how many cents a day are people in Pakistan, India, uh, Nigeria, Ghana, etc., living on, meanwhile, we are getting our cell phones refurbished every nine months, but children are the ones mining the lithium for them. Yeah. And so the dots the are Congo, never, yeah. that's right. And the dots are never quite joined between the words and the actions. And my bottom line on these issues, especially in the context of academia has been, it's a nice talk. It makes the upper classes, a lot of money, mm -hmm. but nothing is changing. And all we're seeing in the United States over the past two, two and a half decades has been this expansion in race studies. Mm -hmm. Now, instead of actually dealing with the stuff of a better world material reality, mm -hmm. we're hearing people whine about, there's no such thing as race blindness, reparations, this yeah. and that. And it's like, wait a sec, all of that is a discussion we can have, but that's not actually ever going to change the political and economic issues today that are very linked to what we've just been discussing here. And what I really appreciated about your book was a later chapter, well, both the chapters of attitudes to money mm. and how Western academia sustains white status. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to jump to that second one, although I'd like to hear more about the attitudes to money, because you write this, you will thus hear a lot of talk in universities these days about the need to decenter whiteness from knowledge production and pretty much everything else. Arguments in this direction invariably elicit many nods and few questions. They are often made or at least supported by top scholars with plenty of prestige and power in academia. 
The cleverest proponents of these views are very adept at moralizing the discourse, it's about justice, or deploying irony. So it is not always easy for less influential scholars to feel confident enough to risk a withering rebuke by challenging the views of those higher up the academic pecking order, safer to nod along. Now, what were you discussing there? What were you referring to specifically? So what I was referring to is these kinds of push for, like I say, things like, you know, someone will come up, you know, in a meeting, say, oh, you know, we, we need to decenter whiteness from, you know, knowledge production, or we need to decolonize, you know, the curriculum and things like that. And, you know, and usually I look at, usually I just observe at such meetings and, and sort of, um, uh, I, I, I don't really tend to talk much uh, at such meetings because I, I, I think I learn more sort of, you know, observing. And, you know, and I see on, on some people's faces that, I suspect they sort of don't agree 100% or perhaps have, have some questions, but nobody ever raises any questions when such, when such um, things are, when, when such things are said. It's just, there's just that assumption as if you're discussing something that, you know, just so obvious that, you know, everybody is obviously on the same page. Um, so people just keep quiet, yeah, and not alone, because like I say, again, status hierarchies everywhere. In academia, there's a hierarchy too. OK, in academia, there's hierarchies, too. And these kinds of people who you talk about, you know, um, uh, D'Angelo and all these, you know, top professors, etc., they have a lot of prestige and power. They don't like to present themselves as powerful people. They like to present themselves as, you know, social justice warriors and people like that. But they are very powerful people within their own circles. They're not people that can just be challenged like that. So in every university, too, there's a pecking order. There's, you know, professors there who've been there for long. There's famous professors or famous scholars there, you know, who everybody looks up to or, you know, talks up to, as is often the case um, uh, with humans. And it's very difficult for others to question those kinds of people. And so those kinds of people, you know, they just, they push through that view and that's it. It's gone. You know, nobody's going to raise any issues. Another thing which I, I often find sort of, you know, astounding is that, you know, there's a lot of groupthink in academia. So sometimes I'm not sure whether the groupthink is genuine or half the people in the room are just pretending to think that way. Because that's also an option. Like I said, I think there's some people who simply go along. They simply nod along, even though they don't agree or they don't agree definitely 100%. But besides that, there's definitely a lot of groupthink in academia. Because there are issues which will be raised. And then someone will say something to me. And there is a clear, immediate assumption that me as a person of color, as a black person, I obviously share the view they have on this issue, especially when it's an issue around race or something like that. They they don't even ask, oh, Remy, you know, some people, of course, you know, those who may have written, read my writings, they will, they, they will ask now, especially, you know, now. But before, you know, they wouldn't even ask that, oh, Remy, do you think this or do you think that on this race issue? There is the immediate assumption that, oh, Remy, you know, look at what such and such person is saying or such and such person is an idiot with the assumption that I definitely share their view that that person is an idiot because the person might, for example, be criticizing an anti-racist stance, you know. And it's sometimes almost endearing, really, this immediate assumption that I probably definitely think a certain way because of my skin color, you know. So that's another thing which, which, which I definitely am, am noticed there. And it's based on that assumption that, after all, all right-thinking people definitely think this way. Is it even the imagination that you could think differently because, you know, th that must mean, oh, my God, that must mean we've let a bad person into our midst, <laughs> you know? Right. Well, you know, the American journalist who wrote The Jungle, Upton Sinclair, 
He's mm-hmm. well known for that book, but he's also very well known for saying it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. And that explains, I think, a lot of the contagion that we're seeing within academia. I saw mm-hmm. it within the gender industry, which has gone crazy. I'm sure yeah. now you're in the UK, you see what's up for debate. I've had people on the show who are Olympian athletes who are fighting to keep women's sports for women. And mm-hmm. to think that we're living in an era where what we're seeing is, and Adolf Reed addressed this with Rachel Dolezal many years ago. He was saying in one essay, wait, Rachel Dolezal bad, but Bruce Jenner good? And he was trying mm-hmm. to make heads or tails of this complete contradiction and smack in the face to historical materialism because mm-hmm. reality matters. But here we mm-hmm. are, and you mentioned this, the working class people, they know that Bruce Jenner is not a woman. They know that Rachel Dolezal, you don't have to be African-American. People know that Rachel Dolezal was a fraud. The issues at heart around it might be interesting for a documentary, for an essay. But what we're seeing is society in full throttle and really being gaslit by very few of that 1% in control of finances, of NGO practices, monies, the way universities are funded. Who's getting these posts? Why were there on the board of mermaids pedophiles to support I mean, I'm just giving some really crazy examples, but this Mm -hmm. was was elucidated in the last nine months. Uh, People who are saying that children can be the opposite sex, but why do we have no gatekeeping to truth? I mean, because this is part of the problem. We're living in an era, Remy, where it's almost as if words are taking the front position to actions. If I say I'm a butterfly, then you must believe me. And if you don't, you hate butterflies and and it's a really crazy moment historically and sociologically we're living and especially after lockdown and what a lot of people in a lot of countries such as here such as in the state of victoria in in australia where lockdowns were quite cruel people are coming out and saying oh we've been lied to like a lot of people are waking up about certain lies that their governments told them But the one lie people are willing to run with are that everything's racist or everything is transphobic. And the racism and the transphobia issues are very interconnected within a lot of social media politics. Dare you say, Laverne Cox isn't a woman, you'll you'll be told you're a racist. And it's fascinating the way the lobbies piggyback off each other. Because at the end of the day, Remy, there is such a thing as racism, but it's ironic mm-hmm. that we're never oh. discussing it because we're discussing this socially and media generated racism, which mm-hmm. isn't doesn't feel real, if you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Yes. And a couple of things there. So one thing which is very interesting and I think really changed the dynamics of the way we talk about things, you know, that whole rise of, you know, sometimes post-structuralist, post-modernist, that general idea that narratives are what really run the world. So there used to be a time when, you know, there was all these discussions about, you know, what really is the objective reality out there? You know, is there an objective reality out there? How well can we know it, et cetera? But 
up till I would say probably the late 90s, early 2000s, um, the general sort of, you know, consensus or what most people lean towards is that, yes, there are definitely lots of objective realities out there. Okay. And there's lots of subjective things too, but there's lots of objective realities out there. And that sort of kept the discussion, whether it's on the gender issue or on the race issue, within some kind of framework. However, this idea then now emerged that actually, no, actually the depictions of reality which we have out there are only out there because they are being propagated by powerful groups, certain powerful groups, who want us to believe in those quote-unquote narratives of how the world works. But actually, that is not how the world works. It's simply their version of how the world works. They're simply bamboozling us, okay? And usually, you know, that group seen as behind all this would be simply put white males, yeah? So the idea first emerged in the feminist movement that, oh, look, um, history has always been written by, you know, males. It's always males, males, males. Women have been written out of history, et cetera, et cetera. And they, of course, had lots of, lots of evidence, you know, to back that up. But that idea emerged from there. And so they said, oh, look, so the history that has been presented is not really an objective history. It's just history told through the eyes of a man. So it's a male narrative, essentially. Yeah. This created sort of the space for the possibility of questioning virtually anything that has been said historically by a man as a male narrative, quote unquote. This now moved on also to the racial sphere, especially in the discussion here in the West. So, and, you know, the, the idea now that, okay, so um, the colonialists came to Africa and said that, oh, Africa was an, quote unquote, undeveloped continent, yeah, or uncivilized, even as they used to say at that time. Um, and so, okay, um, is Africa an undeveloped um, continent? People say, ah, actually, perhaps we don't need to see it that way. This, this school of thought of, you know, everything is a narrative would respond. Perhaps we don't need to see it that way. Perhaps that was just a Western narrative. That was actually just a racist narrative. So you see we're also moving away from now looking at things like GDP per capita and people's incomes and how much people are earning to moving towards this idea that actually it's really there is perhaps no big difference between america and i don't know um uh, and, and nigeria sort of you know generally speaking it just depends on your perspective and the narratives around it and this started to bug me a lot when i started hearing there would usually be africans who are in the west so located in the west uh, or in western institutions start to talk so much about the narratives around africa and less and less and less about the realities of Africa. And, you know, and I'm telling them, okay, look, fine. What you people are saying is true, that generally speaking, Africa has been, you know, negatively portrayed, et cetera, et cetera. Fine. There's the, that's true. And, you know, we can discuss around that. But you people are now almost suggesting that the reality of Africa is clearly not that bad. It's just, you know, Western narratives, racist narratives have portrayed it that way. But how can you tell me that 500 million people living on less than $2 a day, that's, that's what? That's not a reality? That's just a Western narrative? Do, do, you, do you see where I'm going with this? And, and, and this kind of discussion, it seeped into so many various spheres of life. And it's simply, you know, and then we have now gotten to the situation where we are now, where, you know, something like objective reality, nah, there's nothing like that. It's just, you know, perspective, subjective perspectives of powerful groups, you know, 
and, and things like that. So essentially, the whole world has just been one sort of grand conspiracy of powerful groups trying to maintain their power. And all the things they've told us really about history and about how the world works, it's all BS, really. Yeah, we don't need to believe it. We can have our own subjective perspectives, even though, of course, the, 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 the contradictory thing going on here is that if a, for example, black person talks about their lived experience, uh, then that subjective perspective, there is a demand that it be treated as objective. Yeah? That, oh, because this is a lived experience of a black person, and they are telling you they've been oppressed and marginalized, so you have to believe them. So then, so when it comes to certain actors, we are told that actually what they're saying is objective. But when it comes to other actors, so the actors we don't like, the powerful actors, white males, for instance, then they are never objective, they're only subjective. So essentially, we've now come to the situation where the oppressed groups, members of oppressed groups, are the only ones who are seen as being objective. The members of the powerful groups, everything they say is subjective. And here we've gotten to where we are today. And this is why in a place like academia, even, even in a place like academia, someone can, let's say, write an article, for instance, criticizing, I don't know, let's say the anti-racist movement or, or, or the trans movement or whatever, and the first thing people might ask there is, you know, who wrote that article? And they say, oh, John Smith wrote that article. Ah, John Smith is a white male. Of course he'd, of course he'd write that. You see? So that, of course he'd write that. So, you know, so there's no, there's no discussion here sort of with the content of what has been written. The problem is that it was written by John Smith. And John Smith is a white heterosexual male. So, of course, he's just being subjective there, you know, and trying to maintain the power of, you know, white heterosexual males, etc. So we've got and we've gotten into this kind of madness. Now, the question which I often used to ask myself is, OK, fine. So this is, you know, what Western and this was started, of course, by you know, French philosophers and all that questioning, questioning, you know, how power works, Derrida and all that. And it's now seeped into this sort of identity politics. So then I ask myself, OK, why would this be attractive to, for instance, um, intellectuals of color living in the West. Why do they like this? What is it that seduces them about this idea that it's all about narratives and everything is just a narrative? And then I came to the conclusion that actually, I understand why they would find it seductive. Because if we agree that, okay, it's all about narratives and you know material things really don't matter, yeah? Material realities really don't matter, then that is a space in which, for instance, a intellectual of color in America or in Britain can feel that they can go into and operate on an equal footing with, let's say, you know, a white German, for instance, yeah, who comes from a very wealthy country, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Because those material things don't matter after all. All that matters is, you know, we're both giving narratives, yeah. So you are saying your narratives about the West, about, for instance, how 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 advanced the West is, et cetera. And I am saying my narrative here about how not advanced it is. And as long as we don't have to square those narratives against actual objective indicators, yeah, like how long people actually live in various countries, what kind of access they have to healthcare, what kind of incomes they have, as long as we don't have to discuss those kind of objective objective indicators, which if we discuss would place me at a disadvantage. Do you see where I'm coming from now? Would place me as a disadvantage as someone coming from Africa. So I don't want us to be discussing that. Because if we are measuring, for instance, development by those indicators, then I, let's say on the African side, obviously I know I won't come out well in that discussion. We won't come out looking good in that discussion. So I don't want to talk about that. No, everything is a narrative. 
So you say you people um uh, you know are doing well. So say yes. I can also say we are doing well and you know we are developing. And what makes you more developed than us, after all? After all, it's just a matter of perspective, narratives, etc. And so it's offered a lot of intellectuals of color, I'd say, especially you know, of, of African descent and of, and of descent from the global south, from that much poorer global south. Those who operate here in the West, in those Western cultural spheres we're talking about, it's offered them a space in which they can feel they can discuss sort of, you know, as equals and even perhaps even perhaps shout down the white Westerners who have all that wealth behind them. Yeah, because here it's, it's all about narratives and about ideas, etc. And that and, you know, the ideas game is free. There is no entrance fee. So anyone can access the ideas, the ideas battle. Yeah. And the narrative. And then you go in and feel, oh, yes, now, now we are talking as equals. Whereas if we're to be speaking from the perspective of me, a Nigerian, coming from a country that has an economy smaller than Sweden, which has just 10 million people, and Nigeria has over 200 million people, if we're discussing based on those material conditions, I'd be at a disadvantage. So this is one of the reasons why I think it's a seductive, uh, it's a seductive um, uh, ideology and a seductive way of talking about things from people who hail from societies or identify and or identify with societies that in terms of economic development are very, very low down the hierarchy. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. What happened in academia is from the late 80s, especially the early 90s, it started to be very entrenched in universities where you had to have a certain number of course offerings that focused on race. And it was always about that, nothing more than the focus in a very D'Angelo way, in a way. People are thinking, mm. where did she come from? Well, she came from us. She came from mm. our cultural obsession. Americans, as you very likely know, had uh, not only their horrible past and history with slavery and Jim Crow and the civil rights era, but we never as a society worked through it because largely of capitalism and different mm -hmm. from London. The great thing I love about London is you can literally be steps away from Buckingham Palace and steps away from a council flat at the same time, something you would mm. never see in the United States, never, never, mm. never. Mm. Mm. Now, mm. when they did the big buyout of New York, from the time I was also at NYU, I was living in Harlem, and it was poor then, but it became, as that horrible term goes, gentrified, and they were kicking out people as much as they could. So if you go to Harlem today, Harlem isn't the Harlem of the Billie Holiday era. It's not the Cotton Club Harlem. Harlem is very white now uh, in certain mm. streets. And the, the fact is that it became about capitalizing on that history of color, of jazz, and they turned it over. They flipped it, as they say, in the housing market. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of African-Americans from that area, from 110th Street up, are living over 
in Coney Island with Russian or children of Russian immigrants, right? And it's a paradox. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, a lot of urban historians would say that's just normal. And it is normal if you look back on American history. But what's not normal is a society that can't let go of race. You see, what bothers me about D'Angelo isn't that she's a bad academic who writes really crappy books and has a weird following. It's that everyone is becoming her following and no one's critically assessing what's going on. So I'm going to ask you, what lies behind the obsession, especially in countries like the US uh, and Canada too, I'd have to say, with whiteness that's been at the heart of countless pseudo-scientific and pseudo-academic books. Because again, the Angelo's book wouldn't even pass the litmus test of, a, of an academic text. That's mm -hmm. another irony. So I think there's, so there's two perspectives if we talk about that and the obsession with whiteness. So there's the non-white perspective, the non-white obsession with whiteness, and the white obsession, the white progressive obsession with whiteness. Now, from the perspective of a non-white person, um, the obsession with, with, with whiteness um, among some, and this is probably less than uh, amongst white progressives, but among the non-whites, the, the, the obsession with whiteness comes from trying to answer that question of, um, and I don't even know if this is asked consciously, but from inside, from that question of why exactly are these people on top? That's what it comes from, yeah? Um, uh, why is it exactly that it's white people running so much of the show, running so much of the world, having so much wealth, having all that status. Why is it? Why is it? Yeah. Why? And then some have, so, so this is a question which a lot of people ask consciously or, or subconsciously, a lot of black, brown skinned people, etc. You know, why these white people, how are they able to get to where they are now? Yeah. Uh, and then the answer some have offered is that the only reason they've been able to get to where they are now is because they came up with this idea of white supremacy. It's because they came up with this idea, uh, with these racist ideas, and thanks to those racist ideas and their violence, they were able to subjugate most of the rest of the world, steal most of the wealth of the rest of the world, and they still maintain themselves at the top of that hierarchy based on that racist ideology. This is the answer which has been offered by the kinds of D'Angelo or some other, or, so no, no, sorry, now we are focusing on black black or brown and uh, you know, intellectual thinkers. They have offered that answer, okay? So that's why they say that, oh, we need to talk about this whole whiteness thing because everything which these people have, which these white people have, they have thanks to their racism. So if we want to sort of change things, we have to try and kill that racism. So that's where the obsession comes from, from um, uh, you know, from African, um, some African American scholars, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's simple, just like the way you know, if we look individual basis, like I say, humans are very status, um, uh, status oriented and hierarchical creatures. Just the way individually, people are fascinated by the billionaire. Yeah, people are fascinated by the billionaire. They are fascinated by very successful people. They are fascinated by high status people. People want to know about their lives. How did this person manage to, you know? get so much of what others want, you know, and, and have all this stuff. So at the group level, that's where that fascination with, with whiteness comes from among some, you know, black and brown people. Now there's, on the second, uh, the second um, actor that seems fascinated with explaining whiteness is the white progressive, is the D'Angelo type. And I think for them, 
it's a wonderful position to be in, and 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 I wrote about it in, in the book that you know they're there as white people, so they also quote unquote enjoy the benefits of you know white privilege, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But then they can sort of project themselves as oh you know, but I'm one of the good white people, so I see all the bad things my people have done, and I'm going to expose them for all these bad things they've done. And look at what they've done. You know, they did so many terrible things to you, black people, you brown people, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, come on, that's a win-win situation because like I argue in the book, there is some kind of implicit racial order in the world based around that wealth order. So when I put myself now in the shoe of such a, a white progressive, so A, I come out looking good because I am sort of revealing the um, uh, the secrets and all the sins of my people, yeah, to the world, um, and saying, look at all the bad things they're doing, look at what whiteness is doing, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I'm gaining audiences and I'm gaining favor. I'm gaining goodwill from non-white people who are upset that white people are are, are at the top, uh, generally speaking, of course. So I'm gaining their favor. I'm gaining fans amongst you know African Americans and Latinos and all these other um, uh, other people, uh, while at the same time. It's not like I'm going to turn black overnight. It's not like D'Angelo is going to become brown tomorrow. She's going to remain white. So she's going to remain enjoying those quote-unquote um, uh, you know, privileges of being white. So for her, there's absolutely nothing to lose. And for white progressives like that, especially when the discussion is not around material issues, you know, because if the discussion were around material issues, then people may start to wonder, but wait a minute, didn't you make $2 million last year or a million dollars? You know how many people that would, um, how many families that would sustain in Africa? Probably like, you know, a, a mid-sized town that would sustain. So they don't want the discussion around that because if the discussion is around those material issues, then, you know, people will start to say, hey, but wait, you have it actually pretty good. You know, what about, so, you know, Ms. D'Angelo, what are you going to do for the for, for the black people, you know, in such, in, in you, you talked about, was it in, in St. Louis? Was it St. Louis you talked about where you said there's a lot of black poverty there? Right, right. In East St. Yes, Louis, yes, yes. there's loads of black poverty all over the exactly, country. Exactly, yeah, but ju ju just an example. So, you know, if the, if the discussion was around money, which I've, I've focused on in my book, then people could start to ask those kinds of questions and then they wouldn't look so heroic then the D'Angelo's of the world wouldn't look so heroic because then they'd come out, they, they'd come across as actually very, you know, affluent people who are, you know, having, you know, quite a nice time, like you say, giving these lectures for six figures, et cetera, et cetera. And people might actually start to get a bit, you know, um, uh, less enthused by their talkings. So, you know, so they don't want to keep the focus on that. So the focus is on all these cultural issues. It's on issue, It's all on ideas as if, you know, the world is, you know, Ideas are important, of course, but the world is not run on ideas because, you know, when people go to the shop and they need bread, they're not going to sell an idea to the person, to the baker. They have to give money to get that bread. So these are the things that people need. But they operate just in that sphere of ideas. So it's all about ideas and, you know, white supremacy ideology and all these kinds of things. That's a safe, for them, safe sphere for them to talk about. So like I say, for the white progressive, it's, you know, they look good. So there's the virtue signaling. It's a safe issue for them to discuss. It's not changing anything fundamental. And they've really got absolutely nothing to lose by this. You know, you, know, you really know um, how committed people are to justice by the price they are willing to pay for it. Exactly. That's how you really know how committed people are to, to justice, uh, Junior. By the price they are willing to pay for it. And I don't just mean, of course, just a financial price, although that too, that too. But it's not just that. It's generally by the price they're willing to pay for it. 
But when you have a situation where people are able to, you know, articulate agitations for justice at zero, not just at zero cost to themselves, but at profit to themselves, then come on, you understand? I mean, it's like you can't even you can't even begin to be able to assess how genuinely committed they are to that. Absolutely. And in the US, you're seeing a lot of these kinds of rehashings. Like I'm thinking of back to Rodney King. And then that seemed to be mm. cut and paste onto George Floyd. But those were very different dynamics, very different affairs, and they're very different histories. And what astounds me about my fellow Americans is their amnesia about history. And I don't think mm -hmm. it's enough to yes. turn the new, I'm going to be ironic in saying this because these aren't race wars, but the media feeds on it with mm -hmm. clickbait and they create race yes. wars. And you know, you're coming from journalism to academia. I did the opposite. I went from yes. academia to journalism. Yes. And I see mm -hmm. the pernicious nature of how legacy media is feeding the flames of fire because never did I see any kind of major media reporting on the fact that these speaking heads of Fauci and then the lesser Fauci's telling people what to do, where to go, don't go outside, don't go outside, but go to the BLM protest. And I thought, wait, this is really screwed up. You can't have a person mm -hmm. who's ostensibly a source for your scientific reporting, who's then instructing people to go out to a very potentially inflammatory protest, but not the COVID masking measures, not the co like things that would be far less dangerous. And because the idea around the police protests was they were police protests. And I found it very funny to see the reporting on both sides of the border. When the truckers in Canada were then protesting, it was fascinating. I don't know if you caught this, but CNN, MSNBC, they, they were the worst actors in this. And they go up to a driver and they said, sir, why are you here? And he's like, these mandates are killing my family. I can't work. I'm not going to get the vaccine. I should be able to work. And well, sir, um, are you protesting Black Lives Matter? And he looks at the report and he's like, what are you talking about? I'm here about COVID. Well, are you a racist? They ask him. And he's like, I'm black. And this is how disconnected yeah. it all was. And I saw a lot of that kind of slippage, trying to do gotcha moments. The media has been doing gotcha moments since 9-11, apparently. And it gets very exhausting because I'm stepping back watching all this and I'm seeing that a lot of these quote unquote race wars are completely media fabricated. So when the George Floyd protests were actually going on, or the protests ostensibly about him, a lot of it, a good 50% was rage about lockdown that no media would cover. Only independent media was doing that. Mm -hmm. And then the other 50% were a lot of Black Americans saying, they've just torn my shop up. I don't want this. Like The very mm -hmm. people who were supposed to be saved by these protests became the victims of other attacks because the protests weren't happening in the white parts of town now, were they? No, America is very racially mm -hmm. segregated still. So I found this mm. all very disturbing from both how this was being set up by the media and then the media would purposefully set it up and then not cover it properly, consciously. And it happened over and mm -hmm. over and over. So yeah, definitely. So from the perspective of the media, you know, um, race is good business. You know, sort of, I don't mean to sound cynical, but you know, th this is how I see it. I, I, I've worked in media before. So race is good business 
in the sense that it gets, you know, what does the media need? Me media needs attention because, you know, they need to sort of, you know, they need clicks on their websites and things like that. And there is a lot of anger around race. And it's definitely, like I said, for all these frustrations because, you know, groups see themselves as lower status, etc., that they are seen as lower status. And so there is a lot of resentment out there. There's a lot of envy, really, at what ML white people have among some members of other groups. And so, so, so that is there. That potential is there. And so the people who run these media, you know, organizations, you know, the people who run the websites, they know that, look, like you say, if we put out a video there of some white guys that were able to show that, you know, it's a racist, et cetera, it's going to get retweeted, you know, thousands and tens of thousands of times by people on social media that, oh, yes, look, we've been saying it, look how racist America is, et cetera, et cetera. People will comment, they'll reply, there'll be, you know, so-called audience engagement, what they call it, that they'll have solid audience engagement from that. So they know this is something that gets people worked up. Unfortunately, we live in a world in which really uh, what the media profit off is getting us worked up, getting us angry, because when we're angry, we engage. The last thing what would kill off media is if people disengaged, if people were just like, don't care not bothered. That's, that's the death of, of any media. Okay. So they need to get you engaged. So the question then is, how do they get you engaged? You know, can, can they do it by positive, um, by positive news, etc.? I think many of them, um, uh, you know, for one reason or the other, come to the conclusion that they can't get people engaged with positive news, you know, although there are, of course, you know, some feel good stories out there and stuff that all relate on the social media. So there's a niche for that too. But generally speaking, um, uh, they can get more attention by getting us worked up, getting us angry at each other. You know, whether it's um, me angry at you because I'm a Democrat and you are a Republican or I'm a Republican and you are a Democrat or me angry at you because you are a woman and I'm a man or vice versa or me angry at you because, you know, I'm black and you're white or vice versa. That's what when we get angry, we engage, you know, so people go on social media and they reply and respond idiots, etc., etc. That's all engagement. That's all fodder for the media. You know, that, that's what they need. So that's one reason why they focus on that and they focus on it in that way because it's all about getting people worked up. You know, it's about provoking that black rage at, for, for these reasons we've talked about, at provoking a white counter-reaction, you know, um, et cetera, et cetera. That, so they do that because it's good business. That's one. Two, there's definitely also um, a sort of a, a structural reality there within the media houses in the sense that, okay, who runs these media houses, you ask yourself, yeah? So the people who generally run the media houses, you know, the, the New York Times and, you know, the Guardians and those big um, uh, um, uh, progressive newspapers will generally tend to be white progressives. There will, however, be some people in the newsroom there today, if we're talking 2023, um, that will be um, people of color, yeah? Um, many of those people that will be people of color within the newsroom uh, could also mount some pressure within the office on those white progressives that, oh, we need to cover this more. This is important, okay, because this is about race. Now, those black people who might be in the, or, or brown people or other non-white people who will be, let's say, senior journalists in the New York Times or in the Washington Post, etc., will generally tend to be people very much on the left. And they will be people also who will put some pressure in the office on those white progressives who are the ones who, let's say, call the final shots, yeah? The top, top, top editors. Oh, we need to cover this, we need to cover that. And now those white progressives, when they come under such pressure, 
from their senior editors, let's say, who are black, etc., would be scared shitless to say, no, we're not going to cover it. They'd be scared shitless to say, no, we're not going to cover it. Because if they do that, you know, we live in this social media world. That black editor in, in Washington Post or in New York Times would go on to social media and say, oh, well, I told my, you know, editors that we needed to cover an important story on race. And they just shut me down, you know. Wow, looks like, you know, they're not interested in talking about race, etc. Yeah, racism doesn't matter to them. Yeah, etc, etc. And then, you know, the whole Twitter is going to sort of, you know, pile on the white progressive editor who did who refused to cover that story on race. Do you, do you see what do you see what I'm talking about here? So there is also that kind of structural dynamic. This did not exist 20, 25 years ago, Julia. This is very important. How many senior black journalists were there, you know, in CNN or in the BBC, you know, 20, 25 years ago? There definitely weren't many. There were always, it was just individuals, really, you know, a couple of people, you know, who made it and got famous, etc. But there weren't that many, not at all, you know. Um, uh, right now, there's more. There's more. So there's also that dynamic going on there within those newsrooms. So that also is, is having a, a, an effect on, on, on what's going on here. Well, it's very strange for me to compare the reality of what the media is printing and mediatizing on film and audio today from 20 years ago. And I think back to around 9-11, this is where I saw in the US and in Europe, a fracturing of the left and right, where objectivity for the left was thrown out the window when they started embedding journalists mm -hmm. and we saw this in iraq one under george bush senior's invasion but it was minimal mm. but somehow that became this very mm. cool like cinema verite thing of we're going to be part of the team and we're going to show you the truth when in fact it was anything but that it's sort of like these information commissioners now that are out to fact check the news they're actually there to ensure that we're getting not fact check news that we're getting fictions and it was sort of mm. the same kind of functioning where americans were buying this cnn reporter in a uh, in a tank with a bunch of other soldiers that this was the real news mm. because as you and i speak Julian Assange is lingering in Belmarsh prison for having uncovered mm -hmm. what are violations of the Geneva Convention. But we're not discussing that now, are we? Mm -hmm. Let's not discuss that. Let's mm -hmm. not discuss, in fact, a lot of violations of the Geneva Convention would come into what we've discussed from lockdown measures, the lack of informed consent, which came out of the Nuremberg hearings regarding the COVID vaccines that now we're learning that humans were effectively a mass of mm -hmm. guinea pigs. And even when we start to talk about what's going on with the transgender ideology in the UK with the closing of the Tavistock in London, we are seeing the children mm -hmm. have been experimented upon in a very Mengelian way. Yet, all mm -hmm. these major media sources are saying nothing. My thinking is that these so-called progressives are not that progressive at all. In fact, mm -hmm. I'm seeing racism, I call it racism 2.0. If we have to run around talking about race all the time and you refuse to talk about housing, jobs, mm -hmm. salary, healthcare, things that really matter to not just black people yeah. and immigrants, but to poor people, people across mm -hmm. the board, then you're using racism as a cover for your inability to address 
actual material problems, which is a leftist mm -hmm. issue. So I don't see these progressives as anything on the left. I see them as neocons of a different stripe, if you follow me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, as you, you, you say, those, those material issues that they, 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 they are the things of the left, they used to be the things of the left. And of course, you know, that left today, even if, you know, even, even if we look at that left today, there's various strands of the left. And they've always been, you know, there's various schools in any sort of huge political camp. The question is always, which of those camps within a camp is the one that's going to get the loudest voice, that's going to be setting the tone? And now the thing is, even though there are still people on the left who care about material issues, you know, here in Britain and in America, etc. There's loads of them. There's loads of people like that. The problem is that those people don't get the microphone on the left these days, you know. So who gives the microphone on the left? Um, now, of course, you know, there's social media and anybody can open a Twitter account, etc., etc. But still, at the end of the day, for you to really be able to reach a huge audience, you still need that support of mainstream media. Yeah. So, you know, if you want to reach a huge audience here, yeah, you need to be on BBC, Sky News, you know, write an article for The Guardian, etc. Yeah. And then, you 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 know, your, your message can really get heard. So the question is, who do these, you know, um, who, who do those mainstream media on the left give the mic to today? So today they don't really give the mic to the labor union people, uh, to the people talking about, you know, these sort of, you know, material issues. They will generally give the mic and airtime and, you know, column time, etc., to those people who talk about those uh, cultural issues, which we're talking about here, about how narratives are important and, you know, there's whiteness and white supremacy and this and that. Now, the question also I ask myself is, okay, why would they do that? Now, the reason I think is because, and this goes back to some of the things we discussed at the beginning, the people who actually run the BBCs, the Guardians, the New York Times, etc., are generally, generally don't have material problems. So generally speaking, they're quite disconnected materially from what's going on with the regular citizen on the streets. Yeah. They may not all be millionaires. They're, I'm not saying they're millionaires. Yeah. So the people who own the media are obviously very rich people. But the let's say senior, senior editors in all these places, yeah, you know, they may not be millionaires, but they are generally very comfortable materially. You know, they do other things too and have access, all sorts of networks, etc. So materially. These are people who are pretty much taken care of, yeah? So they're usually, there'll be people in their, you know, early 40s, you know, to 50s, you know, the people like I see who are taking the decisions, who are calling the shots. And they're generally materially sorted. So they are not worried about paying the bills or heating in their homes and things like that, okay? And so um, uh, the issue, so A, they are a bit quite disconnected from those issues. Uh, and B, their ideological sort of predispositions, the kind of people who are in the newsrooms today will often be people who came up in that sort of identity politics mindset. And so they will be people, those are the issues they really care about. Okay. So the, the, the typical statistical senior editor in a major, you know, mainstream media newsroom today, you know, they don't really care that much personally um, what the minimum wage is. Yeah. Or, you know, um, what it costs to rent places, you know, today, etc. You know, that's not really their primary concern. Yeah. Um, A, they perhaps even feel uncomfortable discussing such things because, like I say, they are generally materially quite comfortable, even if not outrightly wealthy, generally materially comfortable. So they don't really connect with those issues 
they might even feel uncomfortable discussing those issues. The issues they like discussing are these, you know, issues of narrative and ideas and, and, and you know, the, the trans stuff and things like that, you know. That's where they feel comfortable in. And those are the issues they want to discuss. And that's why the people who will get the mic on the left will tend to be people who are discussing those cultural issues and not the people who are discussing the economic issues. And this has created a huge problem for the left very often when it comes to winning elections, for instance, here in the UK. Yeah. So, you know, the Democrats haven't done bad in the US. You know, the, obviously uh, Biden now is, is, is there in office. But, you know, the left hasn't won an election here in Britain since uh, 2007, I think. Yeah, that was uh, Tony Blair was the last um, uh, left-wing uh, Labour politician here who won an election. He's the last, you know, the Labour Party here is, you know, the, um, of course, the biggest um, uh, um, uh, left-wing party here. And he's the last Labour leader to have won an election in this country. And I think one of the reasons is because, you know, the left started going in that direction of, you know, these cultural issues and, and things like that also. And, uh, and a lot of people sort of, you know, voters floated away from them. So those voters who are concerned about the material issues sort of, you know, didn't feel that inspired. So it's definitely one it's something that has caused um, uh, some um, uh, problems over here. You know, there's a saying here, obvious, um, uh, quite often that you know the the right has political power, the left has cultural power, and you know that saying uh, shows you sort of where the focus has been. You know, of the left that it has been on those cultural issues, and like I say, to a large extent, it's because the people calling the shots in the cultural spaces there, they are materially quite comfortable. You know, so they're not they're, they're not concerned with those issues. And um, uh, yes, so I think that's um, I can't even remember the question you asked. But, you know, so going back to sort of the reasons, the reasons for this, you know, I think um, uh, um, uh, that has um, uh, quite a lot, you know, um, uh, to do about it also. These last two decades of seeing the way the media has shifted from being more objective, the media has never been perfect, but it's been at least trying to get some objectivity, I'm thinking of specific papers, obviously, to now being unable, I can no longer read the New York Times and think I'm about to read something that I can trust. You talk to people around the world, because you know what price they pay for our elections? Bombs. And Trump was the first mm -hmm. president in my lifetime that did not expand warfare. I said this mm -hmm. recently to someone, and she retorted, well, that's just because the Republicans are non-interventionists. And I said, well, call it what you want. That's recent, though, and I'll take it. And so will the people of the planet who are really happy to not be kissing bombs through the roofs. And this is an irony, similar to what you write about in your book about race. A lot of people don't understand that when we vote in the booths, people in countries around the developing world are paying the price of our votes. Definitely um, uh, true. Um, difficult to say if I had a crystal ball, I'd probably be able to tell you um, uh, what the end game is. I don't, unfortunately. So truth is, I don't know what the end game is. There's a couple of sort of, you know, um, uh, scenarios which um, uh, or, or things which I think, you know, will determine what direction um, uh, things go. So clearly uh, there is a huge sort of search for a new uh, religion uh, in the West, you know, people need to believe in something. There needs to be something a bit more to life for people than just, you know, waking up, um, you know, going to school as a kid and then you go to university and then you wake up every morning, you go to work and then you come back home and that's it. 
Now, once um, from the period when sort of religion disappeared from the West, and especially, you know, here in Europe, I think a lot of people sort of, you know, lost any kind of sort of, you know, meaning to life. Um, but okay, after, uh, after religion, even there was communism, there was socialism. So people had those sort of, you know, that utopian views, which they had that, okay, this is what we're working towards. Yeah, this is the better world we're working towards. Then, you know, communism collapsed in um uh, in, in 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 1989 or 1991 whether it depends which particular event uh, you want to look at but then it collapsed then and then what happened after communism after communism we had sort of 20 years of neoliberalism yeah and you had the clinton years and you know you had the blair years here and all that and and and, and essentially what that kind of sort of ideology essentially preached was that emphasis on the individual so, you know, look, work hard, do well, make good, you know, pay your taxes and, you know, and, uh, you know, and then bye bye and then, you know, die at some point And then, you know, and then, you know, the next generation comes and, and, and they continue with that. That was essentially all they were offering was sort of just, you know, like I say, you know, work hard, pay your taxes, etc. There was nothing, you know, even remotely spiritual. There was no kind of major ideology there. OK, it was a very non-ideological, I'd say. I'm a part of, a, except of course we look at neoliberalism as an ideology, but I think you get what I mean. They weren't offering people anything more than the mundane stuff of life. Now, um, that was a gap which was there in the West. And then, you know, the social justice movement, what's now called Wokery, was able to move into that gap and offer people a meaning, something to fight for now it used to be called social justice now it's called woke of course woke people don't say oh i'm woke you know they say i'm fighting for social justice so social justice is almost like the new communism in the sense of it's a, a clear ideology it's of course contradictory etc you know just as communism also was but it's a clear sort of pathway to a better world at least it seems so on paper and this is why you know because you know i i lecture students here i teach students here so you know i rob minds with 19, 20, 21, 22 year olds. And look, it's not like these people are stupid, like these young people, you know, that they don't see some of these contradictions, even in the woke movement or on the left. They see them, Julian, believe me. The 20 year olds see them. Uh, they do not, they don't agree with everything. There's some things they disagree with. However, they think that at the end of the day, these people are on the right side of history. But at the end of the day, they are fighting for a fairer, more equal world, whether it's for, you know, on, on more rights, you know, for, um, uh, you know, for women. Um, of course, the trans issue, you know, complicates issue on, issues on that. But generally speaking, if we take that aside, um, uh, the students believe that essentially wokeism is on the right side of history, that it is fighting for something, some kind of better world, social justice, equality, fairness, etc., and that of young people tolerated, you know, because the, the real sort of activists, the people who are very actively involved in it, it's a tiny minority of the young population. It's a tiny minority of people, but they're loud on social media, etc. But the majority of those young Western populations generally sympathize with Wokery because they see it as, at the end of the day, striving for some kind of better world, etc. Now, the counteroffer on the right, there is no counter offer on the right 
Um, and I say this as someone who, like you, has been on the left sort of, you know, all my life. Um, and those are the politicians who have always supported people on the left. But looking at this objectively now as, 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 as an analyst, there's no counter offer on the right of what their version of a better world would look like. Counter offer to Wukri on what a better version of the world would look like. The only counter version so far is anti-Wukri. Yeah. So that's essentially people saying, oh, you know, what the woke people are saying is nonsense, it's rubbish, it's stupid, it's idiotic, etc. The thing is, you can say that, but it's not going to stop a lot of people, especially young people, sympathizing with wokeness for the reasons which I've just given. So as long as there is no counter offer, so in some kind of better world, because, you know, 30, 40 years ago, what was the right-wing sort of counter-offer? What was the conservative counter-offer? There was a counter-offer there, yeah? Oh, you need to focus on family, you know, tradition, uh, religion, uh, things like that. That was a counter-offer, which the right was, was, was proposing for the better pathway, you know, the, creating the better world. Now they're not really offering anything, okay? What do the Tories offer? What's their, what's their grand vision of what Britain should look like? I'm not even sure any Tory could tell you, you know. They'll, of course, mumble some buzzwords, but it will probably focus around, you know, economic growth and things like that. And there might not be really more to that. Whereas the woke people, they'll give you a speech on what they want. They'll give you a speech on what they want. Equal rights for this, equal rights for that, etc., etc. So there's no counter-offer. As long as there is no counter-offer, no vision, no utopian vision on the right that is plausible or sounds good or captures the imagination of lots of people, then Wokery is going to continue its march forward. Thank you.